Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. Dialogue. Dialoguejournal.com. Dialogue. Dialogue journal. Dialogue. Dialogue. It's the 50th anniversary of Dialogue. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Morris Thurston. Do you remember the Indian Student Placement Program? I remember for many years church leaders asking members to take a Lamanite student into their home during the school year, and thousands responded to the call. In some respects, these kids had two families, their birth parents on the reservation during the summers, and their foster parents in Utah, Idaho, California, or wherever during the school year. And then the program just died. We never heard about it, and we never heard why we didn't hear about it. What were the reasons for establishing the program in the first place? What were the reasons for killing it? Our guest today is Dr. Matthew Garrett, history professor at Bakersfield College, author of a book called Making Lamanites, Mormons, Native Americans, and the Indian Student Placement Program, 1947-2000, to published by the University of Utah Press. Matt's book won the 2015 Juanita Brooks Prize in Mormon Studies. I think you'll enjoy this presentation, and if you have friends who participated in the Indian Student Placement Program, either as students or as hosts, please let them know about it, because I think they would enjoy it as well. And finally, remember that dialogue depends on the generosity of its listeners and subscribers to keep it financially viable. Please consider making a donation on our website at dialoguejournal.com, and thanks so much. And now to our podcast featuring Matt Garrett, speaking to a gathering of the Miller-Eccles Study Group in Orange County, California. All right, tonight's speaker. We've got Dr. Matthew Garrett, who's professor of history at Bakersfield College. He's won the 2015 Juanita Brooks Prize in Mormon Studies for his book, Making Lamanites, Mormons, Native Americans, and the Indian Student Placement Program from 1947 to 2000. And that's what he'll speak about this evening. Dr. Garrett completed his undergraduate education at Brigham Young University where he first flirted with the topics of Native American and Mormon history. During graduate study at the University of Nebraska, he fully focused on Native American history and anthropology, including four semesters of Omaha language and he contributed to an Omaha language lexicon, as well as an autochthonous garden. And I will challenge anyone here to spell autochthonous other than Matthew and to define what it is. But uh, <laughs> I can now define it and spell it. You can see me afterwards if you want to know. Uh, in 2006, Professor Garrett received Arizona State University's prestigious University Graduate Scholar Grant to complete his PhD there in Native American history. And he now teaches United States and Native American history at Bakersfield College. Matt currently serves as gospel doctrine teacher in his ward, and he and his wife Jen, who is sitting next to him, uh, are the parents of three beautiful daughters. Jennifer is a musician who has a doctorate in musical arts and choral conducting and is the choral director at Bakersfield College, so it's nice that they both work at the same place in general. So without further ado, I'll yield the floor to Matt.
Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm, I was really flattered to be invited. It's an honor. I, I looked over some of the previous people that have spoken, and I couldn't believe the names of people you brought out here, or next month, that's amazing. So you guys have really quite something special here that I'm really excited to be able to slide in and fill in a spot for you. Um, thank you. I wanted to start by talking a little bit about how I came to the subject. Uh, the subject of Native Americans and the placement program was really something I backed into, and if you'll indulge me, I'll talk a little bit about my personal life, just a little bit. So it started as a missionary. I served in the, Nor uh, the, the Denver North Mission of Colorado, and I, I had a great mission president who believed in reading. He was a CES guy. He would encourage me to read things that were outside the approved uh, collection. It started with things like Talmadge um, and then Nibley and Dewey. And I, just, I started reading it every month. We'd sit down with a book and talk about it. And he'd say, great, now get another one, but send that home because you can't have that. <laughs> and so I, I started reading and I started loving history. Uh, and I enjoyed Mormon history. So I, I came back and I went to BYU for my undergraduate, and I took a lot of history classes, that was my major, and I took a class with Brian Cannon. And Brian Cannon is a first class scholar, he is great. And he introduced me to a topic that I'd never heard of. He had written a couple articles about it. It was Native American children in the Utah Territory period who were adopted or enslaved by Mormons. And the big debate was adopted or enslaved, right? And looking at some of the records and trying to figure out what was the status of those Indians. And so I thought that was exciting. I did that for my senior thesis. And then I went on to Nebraska for my graduate study, Native American history. My advisor there, John Wonder, he sat me down and he said, Matt, I think for your thesis, you should write on the Indian Student Placement Program. And I said, what's that? Because I had never heard of it. And so I, you know, Wikipedia or whatever, I looked it up and I, okay. And I can tell you now, for those who don't know, and even doesn't, the brief overview is that in 1947... Some Mormons living in Richfield, Utah, brought in a native girl named Helen John, and an informal program evolved that grew larger and larger until about 1954 when it became the official program of the church. And it continued to grow larger and larger. Foster care children, Native Americans, in largely mostly white Mormon foster homes. Uh, and it grew and grew until about 1971 to 72 when the program peaked at 5,000 students. That year, And then it slowly declined steadily up until about 2,000 or so is when the last student I've tracked down graduated high school. Last student in the program. 2,000 later than people think sometimes. So he told me I should write my thesis on this. And when I figured out what it was, I said, no way. That's a Mormon topic. And I'm a Native American history scholar. I don't want to be one of those guys. Because I had read some work, some of it maybe not the most critical uh, hagiographic, praiseworthy. The Mormons are always the good guys. Maybe you are the good guys sometimes. Maybe you're the bad guys sometimes. We're all human, right? But the work I had read was pretty one-sided, and I didn't want that kind of career. Said so I don't. I want to be respect. So I, I don't want to do Mormon history. Not interested. So I, I did this un, unimpressive, uninteresting thesis about a colonial, a tribe in the colonial period and their foreign policy, and it was forgettable. But that's what I did. And I finished there, and then as I was finishing up the program, Arizona State wooed me away and offered me more money, so I skirted along over there. There were some great advisors I was really excited to work with. Don Fixico, the leading scholar of urban Indians. Peter Iverson, the leading scholar of Navajos. When I got there at Arizona State, I, uh, my first experience was with a, a young Native scholar. I was told, you need to meet her because 
you're doing Indian history, she's doing Indian history, you guys will probably see each other. And so we, we were introduced, and the first thing she said to me was, ah, another white guy doing Native American history, just what we need. I bet you can't tell me the name of 10 Native American leaders from the 20th century. I thought, what did I do wrong? But she was right, I couldn't. Uh, and so I, I didn't understand at the time. I, I pegged her as racist, and to this day I think she might be a little bit. But, but I also understand the context of where she's coming from, right? That for a long time, American history was written from one point of view. That we often think of colonization as something that happened when the land was taken. When the wars were going on, when, when they were whitewashed in the, in the 1950s with assimilation policies. But it's also happening in the way that we continue to write today. In the actors we choose to focus on and how we approach those topics. The voices we use, the perspectives that we represent. And so it was a difficult learning experience, but I do, did learn some from that. Another experience for me at Arizona State was in 2007. I came home for the summer to help my folks. I was working in their attic, laying down some plywood so they could hide all their stuff up there. And I found this box of pictures, old pictures I'd never seen before. So I was rifling through them because I like old stuff. And there were these, well, there were these two girls. They kept showing up everywhere. There was pictures of them in front of the Christmas tree, at the family dinner for some sort of holiday. I had school pictures of them. I didn't know who they were. They looked to me like they were Indian, and I'm doing a PhD in Native American history. I thought this might be something they would have told me about. So I asked, and that's Helen and Roberta. They were in my home two years before I was born. My parents participated in the Indian Student Placement Program, just for about six months until uh, things changed and finances, and they decided to stop. But for a while there, there were placement kids living in my house, sleeping in my room that I didn't know about. So with that in mind, I thought, man, this topic just keeps coming back, right? It won't go away. Maybe, maybe I should do something about it. So I had a research seminar coming up. I was supposed to be writing my first chapter of my dissertation that wasn't really going anywhere. I was extending my old master's thesis that wasn't very impressive to begin with. And so I said, you know what I'm going to do? I, I'm running into problems there. Let's just take a semester off and do something fun. It's my culture. It's who I, where I come from. I'm going to write about Mormons and Indians and just get it out of my system so I can be done with it and move on to what I really want to do. And so I, I decided to start in the earlier period of the church because I already had written that senior thesis that, well, you know, it was a long time ago, but it gave me some starting point. So I said, I'm going to write about early Mormon theology and how Joseph Smith's ideas about Indians were impacted by their actual historical encounters with Indians. And that became what is now chapter two of my book. I couldn't let go of it, right? I mean, I had the leading urban Indian, and I had the leading Navajo historian. How could I not do this subject that just kept coming up? So I ended up working on the Native American, uh, the, the placement program for my, my dissertation, and now, of course, is the book that you have been hearing about. Uh, so as we brought you here under the topic for today of colliding views and hostile crowds, I thought that was titillating. It might, you know, get you interested or something. I don't know. I promise to come to that topic of some conflict because there's lots of it. What I've chosen to do is sample different points in the history of the placement program that had conflict because we're all humans, we conflict at times, and that sometimes is interesting. So let me highlight a few different conflicts. I will not obviously be able to cover the entire history of the program or my book, but I will give you some tastes and maybe it'll make you want to go read the rest of it. So the first one I want to talk about is the beginning of the program. It began 1947 when Helen John was brought in by the Avery family 
Her family were migrant workers. The Avery family hired them every year. They had a relationship. The local state presidency member, Golden Buchanan, who was in charge of Native American issues for the state, thought this was a great idea. This would help convert Native Americans. So he wrote a letter to Salt Lake to the chairman of the Indian Committee in Salt Lake, Spencer W. Kimball. He told Kimball about the program. Kimball showed up on his doorstep, surprised him, and said, this is a great idea. We need to move forward. But it's not official yet. Elder Kimball would go back to the 12 in their regular meetings, and he would encourage them and invite them to make this an official program. There's a lot of opportunity to help the Native Americans blossom as the rose and fulfill prophecy. And Buchanan continued to advance the program, inviting more children every year. It grew. They hunted down more families. But it wasn't an official program. Uh, Kimball came back. He wrote back to Buchanan. He said uh, his words, The brethren are watching. They don't want you to stop, but they can't tell you to go forward. Unofficial. But Kimball continued to use his apostolic calling to imply to the general membership that it was official. He would go to state presidencies and to bishops and tell them they needed to do this and get on board. Uh, he got uh, Golden Buchanan, a new calling. He was called as the Southwest Indian Mission President, where he could much more easily locate Native American children that might be interested. They recruited Miles Jensen, another guy in southern Utah, to help place them in different families. And this program was rolling forward unofficially, but with the appearance of officialness. Uh, and this led to some problems. Uh, every week, Kimball would go to the apostles and they'd say, we're not ready, but, but he continued to push it. One of my favorite stories about this is in the early 1950s, before it was official, in the North Sanpete State, when Miles Jensen, yeah, Miles Jensen, there's Miles, Miles Jensen was uh, instructed by Elder Kimball to bring the children, the placement children that were in those homes, sit them on the front row at state conference so everyone would see them to have them give prayers, have them give talks. And this would expose the membership and get them more on board while Jensen and Kimball were recruiting. But more importantly, Elder Kimball said that it would uh, help to, uh, well, he said the apostles who visit, the general authorities would become a little more indoctrinated. He was not just trying to convince the general membership, he was trying to convince visiting authorities, apostles, and, and get this program made official. So on one occasion, Mark E. Peterson arrived as a visiting authority. And if you know Marky e. Peterson's history in terms of race relations, there's, he's not known for being super inclusive. Um, and he took to the podium. His words, according to Jensen, Jensen said that, Marky e. Peterson said, I've been hearing about the Indian program of the church. Publicly now, and then slamming his fist down on the podium, I want you to know there is no Indian program. The people involved better clean their doorsteps. This, Jensen recalled, was difficult for him and for his efforts there in that stake. <laughs> On another occasion, Elder Kimball, advancing the cause of Indian programs, told Jensen to go visit with Ernest Wilkinson, the president of BYU. He got to Wilkinson's office and said, Elder Kimball wants you to make five scholarships for Native Americans. We're going to grow something here. Ernest Wilkinson said, no, we're not doing that. He said, that's what Elder Kimball wants. So Ernest Wilkinson said, well, we'll take care of that. I'll, I'll call Spencer. And he picked up his phone and dialed away. And according to Jensen, the half of the conversation he heard from Ernest Wilkinson was, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, Elder Kimball. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Five, yes, sir. 
the end. And there were five scholars. So Kimball was quick to use his role to move the programs forward, uh, even though they were not yet official. They did become official finally in 1954. Ironically, it was when Kimball was out of the country traveling, and they picked a different apostle to be in charge in the early years of the program, of Marky Peterson. Just for the first few weeks, really, not years. Um, so he began the program. What I think is interesting here is that we have a conflict between different Mormons, right? Different leaders. Some that really believe in these programs and some that don't. Some that don't want to see these programs. And the question is, why would some resist? Obviously, as Latter-day Saints, you're aware of the prophecies about Native Americans uh, achieving something in the latter days and how education could help. Why would they resist? We don't have a sure knowledge of why. But I can tell you one reason why that does surface up in records is that of the fear of miscegenation or interracial mixing. The Kimball, obviously, you know, wrote about that and spoke about that. Uh, also, in some of the early years of the program, it surfaced here and there. One example was that uh, in 1954, 1954, as the program was becoming official, Elder Kimball came up with a plan, he said, to help Native Americans socialize with themselves, and, well, they created the Christmas program. Uh, they wanted intra-racial activities. A couple years later, Elder Kimball then explained to the Indian Committee that these activities would be, quote, so they will be more inclined to socialize with and marry within their own race and not intermarry with white people. Now, that's one reason for these programs, these activities that will begin. As you, many of you know, these activities grow to be quite spectacular. Large conferences, uh, speaking, leadership training, um, but it had a, a small beginning there with Uncle Sam. Uh, also, what's interesting, I think, is the question of Native Americans in the story. Where are they? Why are they not resisting? You're, you all are aware of, you remember act, uh, you know, the issue of colonization and resistance that might have happened in the 1970s. Where were Native Americans, how are they feeling about placement program in the 1940s and 1950s? They were excited about it. They thought this was a great idea. At least Native American leaders did, and some parents. Consider that particularly among the Navajo, which was the dominant group to participate in the placement program, the Navajo, they're on a vast reservation. They're isolated. They don't have sufficient schools. The schools they have are underfunded, undersupplied in the 1940s, 1950s. And following World War II, there was a great rush to get more schools. Navajo leaders went to Washington, D.C., to lobby, to demand. There was talk about building a Mormon boarding school in the tribal council. They were open to any venue they could get to get education. And now these largely white Mormon people want to take our kids and provide them a middle-class bringing, uh, take care of them. This sounded much better than a boarding school that would be underfunded, culturally oppressive, your mouth washed with soap. A lot of the children that go, their parents remember really brutal corporal punishment days. So yeah, the Mormon system sounds much better to them. And tribal leaders, many of them products of boarding schools, they're the ones that are working to advance this. Uh, Elder Kimball and other church leaders heavily lobbied. They sent letters. They attended the inaugurations of all of the Navajo tribal chairmen. Uh, we also get them being drawn out to activities. Uh, chairman uh, Raymond Nakai, he attended Lamanite conferences. Uh, Paul Jones, that's not Paul Jones, but that's another Navajo representative. Chairman Paul Jones visited foster homes. Chairman Peter McDonald spoke at Lamanite conferences and called himself a Lamanite. I don't think that Chairman Peter McDonald knew necessarily what he was calling himself or whether he was converting to Mormonism, but he was supportive that these folks saw the placement program as a mechanism to get what they wanted in education. And early on, that's the driving motivation. A little later, when you get second-generation students, the motivations will change and spirituality and other things come in. But 
there wasn't a lot of resistance early on. When does the resistance come along? Well, 1970s, right? 1970s, you get the rise of red power. You have groups like the National Indian Youth Council, the American Indian Movement, the United Native Americans. You have new newspapers like Warpath and Dene Bahani. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, a radical Navajo newspaper. Uh, and a lot of these groups, they're taking, uh, they're targeting institutions of colonialism. They're going after the Bureau of Indian Affairs with its horrible treatment of Native Americans. They're, they're going after Indian Health Services, which has just been negligent, uh, and we've since uncovered all sorts of horrible things. They were doing involuntary sterilization in some places. Right? So, of course, these rightfully so, raising up frustrations against colonial institutions, and along with that, they targeted the Mormon Church. In 1972, the Trail of Broken Treaties that traversed the entire United States. They went from the West Coast, three different spots, to meeting all the way at Washington, D.C. One of those groups stopped in Salt Lake City to protest the Mormon Church and the Indian programs. In 1973, the American Indian uh, Movement organized a protest at Temple Square demanding $1 million for damages done to Native Americans. In 1974, AIM came back again, uh, this time declaring they had received their own vision, their own revelation, and they were quite upset with the Mormon church. Uh, quote, because of your racist attitudes regarding our skin color, I'm sure you're aware about formerly taught doctrines and theories about skin color getting lighter as people became members of the church. Uh, continuing the quote, because of your divisive practices, of pitting Indian against Indian, because of your attempts at cultural and religious genocide, you are hereby ordered to recall your missionaries from the reservations. What I think is interesting in that line is pitting Indian against Indian. What Indian is against what Indian? Is this a, an assumption that maybe there's the red power Indian or the true Indian or the, the, the traditional Indian, and then there's this Mormon Indian that's been colonized, brainwashed, something, and now they're opposing each other? Uh, what is a real Indian? I think that's a fascinating question. Because at this time, 1970s, there's a lively debate going on among Native Americans with the Mormon church completely not involved. Well, we are involved a little, but, but about what's a real Indian. You have the red power activists who think they know what a real Indian is. They mock and scorn, to some extent, older Indians, the traditional Indians. They sometimes call them Uncle Tomahawks. <laughs> Sellouts didn't try hard enough. You got to fight the man like a good red power Indian, right? You need to be anti-authoritarian, inspired by the ideology of the new left at that time, right? Challenge the system. That's a true Indian. Here's a, there's a great uh, essay written by Clyde Warrior, Ponca. He was president of the National Indian Youth Council. He said there's five types of fake Indians out there, right? First, there's the slob or the drunkard, he says, the drunk Indian. Second, there's the Joker, that self-deprecating Indian that thinks that Indian culture is stupid. Third, there's the red-skinned white noser or sellout. There, I suspect he might have stuck something, some of the idea of the Lamanites, perhaps. There's the ultra-pseudo-Indian, the guy that's more interested in wearing beads and feathers than actually doing anything. And then last, there's the angry nationalist. Right? Maybe that's where you'd find your American Indian movement or something. These are fake Indians. He said, it's our job as the young generation in the early 70s, late 60s, to frame and shape what a real Indian is. Now that debate's going on among Indians completely separate from Mormons. But Mormons and Mormon Indians that are calling themselves Lamanites 
are increasingly engaging that conversation within their own argument about what is a real Indian. When red power activists attend BYU to recruit, they are chased off by Native American women at BYU. Uh, what is a Lamanite then? What is this Mormon Indian identity that I'm pitching here? Right? Is, is there actually such a thing? Uh, I don't know. But I do know that Mormon Native Americans, increasingly calling themselves Lamanites in the 1970s, did have some characteristics. There are some values maybe that were common. They tended to value education, individual uplift, as opposed to red power that was more collective, collective self-determination. Mormon Indians, Lamanites, thought more in individual terms. For example, when George P. Lee, and I promise to come back to him later, when George P. Lee testifies before Congress, he talks about individual families' self-determination, the rights for families and individual Indians to choose their future, not the tribe. And he's opposing in that testimony an effort to make new tribal rules about removing children. So a more individualized concept of Indian, perhaps. At the same time, it's very much a pan-Indian movement, uh, the Lamanite identity, but so is Red Power. Lamanites tended to, of course, adopt the Book of Mormon as their history, as a true historical document, as a reflection of their true culture and identity. Again, going back to George P. Lee's testimony to Congress, he said that uh, the placement program did not rob me of my culture. Instead, I gained a true perspective of myself, right? That this is the real identity in the Book of Mormon, and this thing we're seeing on the reservation now or among Red Power kids, that's not real Indianness. The BYU Indian Services Manual declared in its own definition of real Indian power as a good education and a good job. Um, they tended to be conservative, adopting all that Mormon culture there, I suppose. Uh, they did not approve of the media spectacles that the Red Power movement did. Red Power liked to occupy places and get on television and make a statement and draw attention. Not so much our Lamanites. Uh, when... Uh, when Nora, Nora May Begay, former Indian student placement program student. Uh, also, she went on to become, uh, uh, she was at BYU, and she went on to become Miss Indian BYU. And then she went on to become Miss, in, what is the title? I forget now. It's Miss, Miss Indian America, uh, the national icon of Indianness. She's a Latter-day Saint. She said, the militant movements are disgracing to the Indian heritage. Did not approve of these activities. Um, on another occasion, there was a, a, play, a former placement student who served his mission in the Southwest Indian Mission. He was a, a Navajo man. And he said he was on the reservation ministering. He was at the Navajo Fair they do every year. And a couple of Red Power kids came up to him. And they said, go back to Utah. Challenging his... He's not really near, right? He's a Mormon from Utah. So he, he was frustrated. And he responded back yelling at them in Navajo. And then he realized they don't speak Navajo. <laughs> said, you're not real Indians, I speak the language. So there's clearly some sort of disagreement about what makes a real Indian. Is it language skill? And there's perhaps a false assumption that Mormons who participate in the program completely lost their culture. They definitely retain parts of it. I mean, this guy spoke his language just fine. Um, sampling different parts. Uh, going to eject things that are spiritual, right? You can't have competing spirituality. But they're going to hold on to other parts of it. Um, former Indian student placement program student wrote, one former student wrote, what is being an Indian? Quote, there are no rules and regulations. I just think that if you know within your heart that you're an Indian, that's all you need to be. People don't need to tell you you are Indian. 
And then, speaking specifically about the American Indian Movement, she said, who are they to say they are the teachers for the Indian group? So we grow this group of Lamanites, upwardly mobile, education-oriented professionals hoping to be. But that's not what outsiders saw. No, outsiders saw this image. Right? <laughs> the Lamanite generation, you know, founded in 1971 at BYU, a traveling musical troupe that uh, did pantomime. Their famous song was Go My Son, right? Uh, written by Arlene Williams. This is the image, this caricature of a real person, right? This whitewashed sellout is what they saw in their minds. And that's, you know, that's their opinion and that's their perspective and their truth and perhaps there's some truth to it. Uh, there definitely was some cultural change and some cultural loss. Many placement programs left the program feeling like it gutted them of their culture. Others felt like George P. Lee, that it empowered them. You have a variety of opinions. and I dare not thrust one correct answer on all of those people with their desperate attitudes. But I do want to contrast that picture with some serious Lamanites. Right? Now, these all didn't participate in the placement program. Uh, uh, we've got, of course, Larry Echohawk, I know you know, who served as Secretary of Interior, uh, Assistant Secretary of Interior, the position we used to call Commissioner, Bureau, uh, Commissioner of Indian Affairs. Also, Eddie Brown, Pasco Yaqui, same, same position. Both of them went on to fulfill rich careers, serving on lots of oversight committees, driving the direction of Native American politics, and becoming significant players nationwide. Uh, Arlene Williams, the one that wrote that song, Go My Son, She's, uh, well, Wikipedia says, I haven't confirmed this, that she's the first Native American woman uh, nominated for a Grammy. She's a professor of, uh, of fine arts at BYU. George P. Lee, we'll come back to you later and tease you with him again. But he went on to earn advanced degrees. He ran for Navajo tribal chairman, uh, served, served uh, president of a college at the, at the reservation. Ganado, right? So the extension campus, right? Isn't it? So these are real people. They're not the tropes that I just showed you. But you get a variety of experiences here. Um, so some Mormons tried to, by the way, tried to balance both of these competing ideas. It's not always in conflict, right? Example of you, for you is Eddie Brown. So Eddie Brown was a graduate student at the University of Utah. I think he was at the same time serving as their director of their Indian program, something of that effect. And that's when AIM was protesting. And so the LDS Church tapped him and said, you would be the perfect guy to represent us and to negotiate some sort of get-along between AIM. Because he's obviously a true Indian, right? He's running an Indian program at a major university. So we went to the meetings. He said nobody would listen to him, that the church thought he was on the other side, that the AIM thought he was on the other side. Both sides thought he was representing the other side too much. And at the end of the night, no one would give him a ride home. Right? So they're trying. Another guy, Stanley Snake. Stanley Snake was a BYU student and the president of the National Indian Youth Council. And he said that both sides were constantly at him about why he was involved with the other group. So there are some trying to balance both. Uh, perhaps the best example of that, a great example, is in the mid-60s and late-60s, the changes that I see happening and the records I've read at BYU, uh, the Indian dances. There were Native American dances that happened off-campus. Uh, the director of Indian Affairs at BYU, the, the program there, Paul Feltz, he felt like the programs left something to be, quote, Spiritually desired. The dances were just not okay. And so in 1966, during the annual Indian week, he decided, no more dance. We're going to take that out of the activity. Instead, we'll have a talent show. Everybody will be great with that. 
Well, the students were not great with that. They were furious, and they protested, which is unlike our Mormon Indians. They went to Ernest Wilkinson's office, and they demanded their dance, and they got their dance back. So it's not as clear-cut as there's this group and that group. There's a lot of in-between. Uh, but I think the attitude probably was gradually changing at the Y. By 1969, John Rainier, Taos Pueblo, then a grad student, later professor of flute. I think he taught traditional native flute, actually, later. Uh, he, he was participating in a coordinating council, and he said, quote, The Lamanite student is being shackled by the old identity. We're not that anymore. He was upset about the dances. He said it shouldn't have to participate in dances to be a real Indian, to be a Lamanite. That's not what we do. So there is some sort of competing ideas here, and I really think that's one of the most interesting places that I'd like to go when I do more research, because it's not fully fleshed out. These were ceremonial or social dances? Social. Well, social with some spiritual, traditional elements in them, but yeah, they're not, they're not some sort of private, sacred, super sacred thing. Yeah, social. Um, uh, and then by 1970, there's this great story of Victor Salem. Victor Salem is a, I think he was a Northwest Indian. He comes to BYU, he's got long hair, and the, the, the dress code people tell him he's got to cut his hair, he can't have that at BYU, right? Uh, he refuses, and he gets in trouble repeatedly for it. He organizes a committee, a panel, for the uh, annual Lamanite Week. He organizes a panel that's going to advocate red power and why Mormons should be on board with this. And it doesn't make it. They cut it. It doesn't get put in the program. Uh, and eventually he gets expelled. And he goes to the papers and he's upset. And he says, BYU is full of apples. Right? Apple. Thin red skin. Looks red. But thoroughly white all the way through. That's his accusation to those Mormons at BYU. So there's some different opinions there at the Y. Uh, nevertheless, despite this, these protests, uh, the program kept going. Uh, it continued. It did decline a little bit during this period, but it kept going. Uh, the big fight, really, for the placement program in the 70s wasn't in these social battles, but was at Congress when there was the, uh, the, the prospect, the possibility of the Indian Child Welfare Act. For those who don't know, there was a wave of legislation that came through with uh, Richard Nixon, self-determined legislation. The Red Power Movement was effective in making people feel like we need to do something. There's regulating of Indian health services and new funds for education. All sorts of new laws came through, dozens of them. One of them, the Indian Child Welfare Act, was meant to take care of the problem, not by the Mormon Church, though that could also be fixed, but the larger problem that 30% of Native American children in the 1970s were being raised outside of Native American homes. Many tribes didn't have the developed social, work, pro social workers and caseworkers, the social services programs, so they relied on the state to come in and look, and they'd say, oh, this kid's living in squalor. This kid's in isolation. This kid doesn't have access to schools. This kid's in an alcoholic family. And so these kids are being pulled out. Add to that the small number of people that think it's really cool to have an Indian kid. There's a fraction of people also going into hospitals and saying, I want an Indian baby and getting them, adopting them out. And add to that the Mormon placement program. There's a variety of programs. The Bureau of Indian Affairs was partnering with a private group to, to adopt kids out. There's all sorts of programs. This needs to stop, says the advocates of the Indian Child Welfare Act. And so the bill starts to move its way through Congress. There's some debates. The Mormon Church sent out representatives, George P. Lee, Harold Brown, the commissioner of, the, of our program at the time, of social services. And there's some testimony given that uh, hits the national papers, the Washington uh, Post, the New York Times, even Penthouse wrote about it. It's just fun to find that in the BYU archives. Yes. 
poor student there's you know. so so it, it also Native American papers uh, you know Indian country today's writing about it uh, Wasaja uh, Aquasasi notes Navajo times it's it's being discussed but in the end the LDS Church was able to secure an exemption for any program where the parents could voluntarily pull their kids back whenever they wanted. That such a program should not be prohibited. And so the placement program could continue, uh, though some folks were quite unhappy with that. Uh, so it did. And uh, things kind of died down. It went quiet. The, the protests kind of went away. Red Power itself, they, they got all those laws. They were feeling pretty good. And things kind of died down a bit. And it wasn't really Red Power that killed the placement program. It was something entirely different. It was the correlation movement. I know, you know the correlation movement, right? The correlation movement, at times spearheaded by Harold B. Lee and uh, other apostles who he got to follow that idea, was the, uh, the idea of simplification, standardization, perhaps sterilization by integration, right? Bring everybody in, mainstream everything, put it all under a cascading line of priesthood authority, and get rid of all those redundant programs that are just all over the place without oversight. Bring it all into one standardized format. And that was just deadly for the Indian programs that Kimball had really pushed through. And so we see, for example, the Lamanite Committee, 1960s. It gets changed to the Lamanite and Other Cultures Committee. I think that, that makes a statement, doesn't it? Right? It's, it's all those non-white people. That's that thing, right? There's the mainstreaming of the foreign language units, 1973-ish. There's a letter that goes out saying all those foreign language wars, you really should, should join an English-speaking ward and just get a translator to take care of that for you, right? There's the dissolution of the Spanish-American mission, serving Spanish-speaking people down in the Texas area, and the Southwest Indian mission, serving Navajos and other Indian people. Instead, they're replaced with geographic missions like other places have, right? Consistency and standardization. Uh, the Southwest Indian Mission became the Arizona Holbrook Mission, uh, which had much of the Navajo Reservation and white communities around as well. The Indian Seminary, that starts to decline. What's that? Indian Seminary is declining. Uh, about 1973, it starts to, to slow down, enrollment there. And the BYU Indian programs just start just going away. What was once probably the largest Native American program at a university anywhere dwindles down by the mid-80s to something like eight students. Just nothing. Uh, it still continues today. Uh, the Native American program at BYU, it's nothing like it used to be. It's just, a, a, I think it's a minor certificate offered by the history department, uh, managed by great guy Jay Buckley, but it, it's not what it was. So now it's the Tribe of Few Feathers? The Tribe of Many Feathers was one of those programs, right? It's now the Tribe of Few Feathers, I suppose. The Tribe of Many Feathers, those who don't know, was the club at BYU, right? Uh, similar to that, we had uh, Eagle Eye. Anyone remember Eagle Eye was, I think, the magazine they had? It was a Native American magazine featuring the work of Native American students. Gradually, that was, well, we'll include Polynesians. They're Lamanites. And then Latin Americans, they're Lamanites. And then African Americans, they're not white. And Asians. And the magazine pushed Indians to just a few pages. And, yeah. So they're just being overwhelmed by all the mainstreaming. The mainstreaming is eliminating the programs. Uh, this, of course, the vehicle for this was uh, a new um, bureaucratization, a new restructuring that was going on throughout the church, part of that correlation movement, and it was segmenting, part, uh, it was uh, moving parts and places around. Uh, President McKay in 1967, President McKay recounted that his first counselor, Hubie Brown, observed that, quote, it seemed evident 
that the First Presidency was losing its grip on the activities that are going forward, and that more and more we are being regulated and ruled by committees. Increasingly so, the prophets not calling the shots, but the apostles and committees. I think many of you already know this. Uh, Spencer W. Kimball, pushing those Indian programs, as an apostle, he's not serving on all those committees. And so he's having a hard time advocating for those things. And then by the time he becomes prophet in 1973, he's distanced from them because he's not on all those committees again. So he's not able to really fight for them as well as he might like to. Uh, Presiding Bishop Victor Brown commented about how these different people at different times in charge of different parts of the committee's uh, programs had an effect. Victor Brown, Presiding Bishop, uh, he said that the different apostles expressed, quote, strong differing opinions and, quote, flip-flopped on policies. He said, quote, we make drastic changes. We go out and we come back. And then we go out and we come back. He questioned how any organization could function in this way. And he knew something about that. He was a successful uh, administrator himself in his own private life, uh, executive. So there's some problems there. Uh, Enrollment continued to drop a little and stall out and drop a little and stall out in the various programs, in the placement program particularly. It continued off and on. Claire Bishop, the early director of the placement program, the very first director, he was, well, that position didn't exist anymore. He was reassigned as an agency director because the placement program fell under social services, which answered to the, uh, well, to several people, actually, but ultimately then to the Relief Society, and then to the presiding bishopric, and then to the Welfare Committee, which was overseen by an apostle. So, so what once was Spencer Kimball to Claire Bishop uh, running the program, well, Claire Bishop's now an agency director somewhere overseeing placement kids in his area, as well as you know, counseling between two, two adults that they're having a hard time, marriage therapy and adoption of white kids and what other services that social services is running. He's feeling fairly disconnected. And he said, well, he said, quote, oh, let me see where it is. He said that I felt a feeling that maybe we ought not have the placement program to the extent that it had developed, if we should have it at all. And then the final, not final, but another major event that happens is in 1984. 1984, Spencer Kimball's not doing so well at this point. He's not able to really take much of an aggressive role in anything. And the Welfare Committee is overseeing social services where placement has been tucked into. And in this committee meeting in February 1984, chaired by... There we go. There's Victor Brown and chaired by Boyd K. Packer. Boyd K. Packer, chairman of the committee, he says... Now, a lot of people thought that Packer was going to be... Elder Packer was going to be the the next Kimball, Right. I mean, this guy, he taught out at Intermountain in Brigham City. He wrote the manual on Indian seminary. Everyone was hoping he would be the guy. A lot of Mormon Indians that believed in the programs thought he'd be the guy to pick up where Kimball left off. And he didn't think of himself as the apostle to the Indians. He thought of himself as an apostle to everyone. He, he saw the world church and he wanted to serve everybody. He believed in correlation, not in special programs for particular groups of people. So in this meeting in February 1984... Boyd K. Packer raised his hands up. He said, we've given the Indians this much. And they've given us this much, bringing his hands together. And then he proposed a plan. Let's phase it out. Not entirely. Let's restrict it back to high school only. Now, there was some other information that might have informed that decision. There was the presiding bishopric report that the presiding bishopric had conducted that said more than eight years doesn't really help. And really more than four doesn't make much difference. Four to eight years is the magic window. Any more time than that? The placement kids start to actually get selfish and problematic. 
So it's better if placement kids only serve four to eight years. So Packer's plan, let's do four years high school only. And so from that point on, we started phasing back the program until it was high school kids only. Could I interject something about yes, sir. Packer there? Yes, sir. The mechanisms you've been talking about so far are organizational and conflicts of that kind. I think what, what we need to emphasize a little bit more is the ideological change that occurred. Uh, Packer, in 1979, during Indian Week, went down to BYU, yeah. and he said, in effect, the this is thing. what he said to the Indians. Like, you were starting to say, we gave you this much, and you've got, we got back know, that man. much. What Packer said, <coughs> ball-faced right out to everybody, we have been investing all this time and money into the North American Indians in the hope and expectation that they would embrace the gospel and take it to their brethren in the South. That hasn't happened. We're not going to do it anymore. From now on, we're going to go and send our missionaries and our church programs to what apparently are the real Lamanites, People that which are, are the ones in Latin America. America. That was the death knell of this program, even before yeah. the 84. Right. And, and in that same speech, he said, I remember, I found this in your notes. <laughs> he, said, he said, if it sounds like I'm scolding you, it's because I am. Yeah. Right? The, so there was a belief that he had that they just hadn't lived up to expectations. Yeah, it was a yeah. deliberate... Um, decision ideologically to in effect withdraw the legitimacy of the Lamanite designation from uh, North Americans Aboriginal peoples and uh, allow it to be encourage it to be spread to the Latin Americans where the use of Lamanite of course as you uh, may already right. know down there has had its own conflicts yeah and, but anyway that's and at that time there was a lot of archaeological work starting to happen and come forth that suggested yeah. that there so was yeah. it really was part sure. of a whole switch in the uh, in the church leaders uh, definition of what was a Lamanite and what the church what kind of Lamanite the church should invest in mm. absolutely yeah so you can imagine that some folks might not have been too happy about this attitude right and that's where we get to George P Lee so he was a believer in these programs, right? Uh, he was pretty fresh. So George P. Lee, you know, uh, served as the Ganado president, right? And then he got tapped to be the, the whole Arizona Holbrook Indian, Arizona Holbrook Mission president, which was no longer the Southwest Indian, but, but still served that same area. Uh, and then he got pulled out of that early to become one of the 70. Uh, and he, he was told repeatedly not to be a representative or a general authority to the Indians. That's not your job. You're for everybody, but he kept going to Indian activities, speaking on Indian issues. He was explicitly told not to speak about Indian issues at General Conference, and he did it anyway. Uh, and so he kind of kept butting heads with the leaders until finally 1989, when he wrote a letter, a couple letters actually, he published them in the Tribune also, so we can read those. But in those letters, he was pretty aggressive towards the apostles. He said, quote, who terminated the BYU Indian Education Department? Who terminated the BYU Indian Special Curriculum? Who is phasing out the BYU American Indian Services? Who is phasing out the church's Indian Student Placement Program? Who got rid of the church's Indian Committee? 
who fired the Indian seminary teachers? Who pulled the full-time missionaries off the Navajo and other Indian reservations? And then it got worse. Then he began to accuse. He accused the apostles of, quote, scheming to get rid of George P. Lee. Also of pride, arrogance, unrighteous dominion, love of power, status, position, and love of money. He was excommunicated immediately afterwards. His ID card taken, his church credit card, and members access, his temple recommend. Uh, and, yeah. The, the, the church immediately sent out a couple representatives, uh, Russell Ballard and Burke Peterson, to the Navajo Reservation to make sure that the fallout was manageable because they were worried that a lot of Navajos would follow George P. Lee. Uh, there were a lot of Navajos who believed in the programs, I'm sure. Um, but apparently more so in the church. There, there wasn't a huge following, I don't think, of, towards George P. Lee. Now, this didn't end the program. No, the program continued uh, for a few more years. I mean, this is an ugly issue. I think he's the last excommunicated general authority, isn't he? So, yeah. Um, but the program continued. Uh, and what really kills the program finally is in 1990 when we, uh, we have a group called Rain Dancers. Rain Dancers is a private social services group. They operate out of the Navajo Reservation and they deal with the court system there. Kids who get into trouble, Navajo kids who have a rough childhood, do some, make some bad choices. They're involved in drugs or violence or crime. The, the court orders them that they need to go see uh, some sort of rehabilitation program. They can go to Rain Dancers. And Rain Dancers takes those kids plucks them out and puts them in different families, a lot of them in St. George, Utah, where they can be with a foster family, get a fresh start, go to some therapy, get their act cleaned up. That was the purpose of Rain Dancer. Well, the St. George schools were not really excited about all these kids coming down here and up here that were causing, some of them causing trouble. These are real kids with real problems. And so the St. George schools came up with a plan. The plan was just charge them tuition. We charge them tuition, they're gone, right? And so they demanded tuition from Rain Dancers. Now, Rain Dancers Inc.'s uh, director, Ron Hatch, was furious about this. It is not fair. You've got the placement program kids who don't have to pay tuition. You also have nearby the Bureau of Indian Affairs ran a dormitory for kids, and then those kids could attend local schools. He said, I, my plan is launch a civil rights lawsuit and force them to either charge everyone or no one. And we all know, he figured, how much support the church has here in St. George. Obviously, they'll strike down tuition, and that will be the end of it. But the opposite happened. Because, well, they were already looking for a way to get rid of the program. And so there was a deal made, and that was in 1992, that all existing students could graduate out without tuition. For the placement program, that's just high school kids, right? But no new kids could come unless they paid tuition. Now, this doesn't really kill the placement program because you've got kids placed all over the country, even in Canada, right? They could just move them if they wanted to. But this provided the excuse to really phase out the entire program. So that, in theory, by 1996, they should all be gone. Though, in truth, a lot of social workers who believed in this program, a lot believed in it, they got kids that they said, well, you know, you can still do it. Your family wants to do it. Your older siblings did it. We'll just put you in a different category. Because now that placement is one of the many social services, including foster care of anybody, they could just list them as a foster student, not as a placement program student. And so a few more students continue to enroll and participate and graduate out. And so the last one I've been able to find was about 2000. Uh, I think her name was Mary Nelson. And about that time, one of the former caseworkers, uh, 
Dale Shumway. Dale Shumway, he's written a couple of books about placement. He believes in it. He's a big fan. Uh, he, he got together the first student, Helen John, the last student he could find. He, uh, organized, he wanted to organize a fireside. He took pictures. They went to Richfield. He was going to publish an article in the Enzyme. He had big plans to commemorate the end of this thing that was meant so much to so many people, he thought. And he was told, no, none of these things will be okay. The program is not over. It has not yet ended, and you can't have it. Uh, and it just it really didn't go anywhere. And he felt, well, a lot of placement caseworkers felt abandoned. They felt that way from the 1980s on, it shows. They felt like, what happened to this inspired program that we all were on board with, we believed in, and now it's apparently it's not in anymore, right? It's on the outs. Uh, and so the program died quietly. The Indian Student Placement Program ended without fanfare, without much attention, without notice, really, until... Well, hopefully right now I'm trying to bring a little more attention back to it. But it's interesting. I think it just brings up so many fun issues. You know, what is a real Indian? And the idea of, are these guys progressive? Are they pioneering with new programs and ideas? Or are they conservative, just trying to assimilate everybody, right? And does an Indian who adopts this Mormon foreign identity to some extent, does that make them less Indian, right? I mean... What does that mean today? I mean, we're still fighting over some of those issues. So, um, so I think this is a fun topic, and I really am grateful for you making time for me today. I thank you for your time. Questions? Yes, sir. How widely among the other lead church leaders were the sentiments of Boyd K. Packer shared? You know, I do not know how widely those sentiments were felt. I know that, of course, the correlation movement was widely felt, and there's certain people that are known for participating and encouraging that, but specifically about Native Americans not being maybe best. I, uh, of course, Armand Moss is a great authority on this. I, I, I agree that Boyd um, K. Packer was calling them out. I'm not sure he was saying, you're not really them. I mean, I think it was more of a pressure maneuver and a justification. I think he still saw them as Lamanites, but... But how widespread was that? I, I don't know. They're, you know, they're, strangely, the apostles are really tight-lipped. They don't talk a lot about these things. I have a hard time getting notes on it. <laughs> it's hard to get access to things. I'm still trying to get a tell you what, I'm trying to get access to George Feely's interviews. There's a couple dozen interviews of him at the church archive. They, but there's some controversial things in there, I'm sure. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, with respect to the placement program itself, and the and we talked about earlier that some that it turned out this this cultural change taking the families going to show the opportunities for the young kids. That some turned out and some didn't turn out. For those that turned out, clearly it, it would be uh, an effective program or considered such to change lives if, if you have uh, people living active, productive lives. And then for some it had you indicated the opposite effect. Do you see damage done to that side? Uh, you know, someone asked me this in another interview, damage done, and, uh, you know, I'm not a psychologist, therapist, so I can't speak to that. There's, there's no examples of a bunch of suicides, so there could have been afterwards, I don't know, but damage done. The presiding bishopric report that came out in 1982, 83, 84, it does do this really good study. I mean, it's obviously, it's produced by the presiding bishopric, so it's got its own motivations, but, but it, it provides a pretty good look at some of the potential damage and potential good. And they see a variety of things. Um, they talked about good being that they might be more likely to have a bank account and have a job. Um, bad, they had, I think, high rates of divorce. Um, so in some ways, you know, the, there's good and bad. And yeah, I don't know. I think it's really a mixed bag. Depends who you, who's, 
everybody has such different experiences, it seems like. There's just such different results. But for those that may have had, have, have had a negative weather meeting experience or in, in going back to the reservation or, or living life, uh, they may have turned, as you mentioned, to alcohol or whatever right. practices. Uh, they, did, they, they, they may have done that anyway. Right. That's what I'm trying to get Perhaps. at. There's no, there's no real empirical data that would suggest otherwise. Right. Afterwards, or even at the same time, there was a great letter. I found this letter that someone had written. A, a foster parent wrote to George Peely, and they were upset about the foster kids they'd seen in their ward or someplace, that they, you know, these kids were just doing horrible things. And uh, even on placement, right? So a lot of kids are having, a lot of these people are having problems even on placement, certainly afterwards. But how many of them would have had those problems regardless of how much they can attribute to the church or to their previous... Yeah, that's just too muddy a water, I think. I don't know that I could say for sure what, who's to blame. There was a, a one psychologist that wrote a dissertation, Dorothy Shima, I can't pronounce it, German name, that she said that there was just grave psychological harm done. Um, she didn't have just a few interviews she used for her evidence, but, but I mean, that argument is out there, but I don't, I don't see there was enough evidence for it. There's currently a trial going on in Navajo tribal court about abuse of some of Navajo children. They're trying to subpoena President Watson to come down there. Do you have any thoughts on that or any knowledge? So about a year and a half ago, I got this call from some lawyer with a very Mormon name. It's like Wilkinson or something. I can't remember. Something and something and something and something, right? A bunch of McKay and Wilkinson and something other firm. Uh, this sounds like a Mormon thing. And, and, and he said, I want to talk to you about the placement program. And he asked me some questions. And where can I find some material? And since I figured out that must be the law firm that the church has hired, right? Um, so I know that little bit there. Um, I know just what I've read in the papers like you, that there's the four Navajos who have made the accusation. I think I read in an article a year ago that maybe, um, I think one of them, the parent, the foster parents had passed away. And that was what their, their reason for starting now was, but I, I don't remember. Um, but yeah, there's, there are, this, there's this case. Um, the tribe wanted to, the, the, the four folks that, that are accusing that they wanted to have it occur on the tribal reservation in the tribal courts. The church tried to have it transferred out that motion failed, so it's going to stay in the, in the tribe, it looks like. Tribal court system first. Um, they tried to subpoena President Monson. Uh, December was the last article I saw, and I haven't seen. I saw an article about the church filing some motion to avoid the subpoena or something, but. It, it appears like yeah. they're trying to embarrass the church because President Monson right. is not healthy enough to deal with Right, and he didn't, wasn't particularly involved in this program no. either. There are other church administrators who were very much involved. Harold Brown, who testified to Congress, he's still alive, very healthy, very bright. Uh, he would very much be knowledgeable. I tried to talk to him and, and get him to come to a panel with me somewhere, and he said, nope, I can't. I'm involved in the, the case. I can't talk about this. So um, clearly things are happening, but I don't know much more. I'm secretly hoping that I get called an expert witness so that I can learn what's going on, <laughs> at least who to know to talk to later so I can find out information. Like, Most of the children who entered the program in one of these homes, of those children, about how many were already members? Okay, so that's a great question. How many were already members? When the program started unofficially in 47, none of them were really members. Uh, and then in 1954, when they made the program official, the rule that surprised Miles Jensen with about three weeks' notice, or maybe a month and a half notice, was, by the way, they all have to be baptized. Well, he had already had like 70, 80 students from the previous year that were coming back. None of them were members, hardly. And now the church says, well, they all have to be baptized members. That's the requirement, because we don't want to be accused of colonization or something, right? They must be members first. Well, that just resulted instead. We'll go out and baptize Marky Peterson. I told you he was briefly in charge. 
He said, what do I do, Elder Peterson? Elder Peterson said, well, go baptize them all. So they went and they baptized these kids. And then through the course of the program, you had these mass baptisms that happened occasionally. They show up in the Indian Committee notes where 40, 50, 60, 80 people would be taken. And we have a couple interviews that people talk about them. Well, you maybe are familiar with the baseball baptism that Michael Quinn has talked about in England. Similar sort of thing, right? Hey, we're going to the zoo. We're going to the whatever. Come on, guys. Oh, we're going to stop at this building. Put on this white gown. No big deal. Here you go. Boom. You remember. Now keep going. That did happen for sure. So how many were members? They were all members. But, but now then again, there were also genuine conversions too, I'm sure. But how do I? That was the next question. By the time they left, about how many? Right. Now, how many of them are now genuine members? Well, how do you know if they're a genuine, real Mormon or a fake, just baptized Mormon, right? Uh, maybe you look at, yeah, right, you can take a look at, um, at uh, church attendance, right? You could look at, at uh, do they do their own teaching, I suppose. Those numbers are horribly low on the reservation. <laughs> or they were. But then again, I'm a horrible home teacher, so who am I to judge? I don't know. So. Well, Brother Packer used the, the backsliding, as he thought of it, yeah. as the, one of the main reasons for getting out of it. You know, when he said, we did all this for you. And it's what, not you, working. You know, you don't stay in the church. You don't get advanced in the priesthood. You don't get married in the temple. You go back and start drinking again. We're just not going to do this anymore. That was kind of his, his uh, thing. Yeah. And let's not forget the departure of President Kimball, the timing of that. Right. This is important. George P. Lee... That thing, he, he said, you know, now I know how Custer felt. <laughs> that, that, that was what he said in his first talk when he was sustained as a general authority. That was 79. Well, from then on, Pres President Kimball became increasingly feeble and really ineffective and died in 85. Well, the departure of President Kimball by 85 uh, removed one of the, uh, you know, probably the last real champion of the program. And the guy that they thought was going to be the champion didn't share those views. Yeah, so. he was also the last champion of, uh, of George P. Lee, which uh, yeah. didn't help Brother Lee's career. <laughs> what should I have? Is, uh, has there been oral histories collected with students and families? And, and where were those? There are. One of the things I'm most proud of is that I have a hundred interviews tucked into this book. Yeah. Right? There's a ton of them, because I, I didn't want to be accused of another white guy telling their story, but right. I let them talk most of the time when I can. So you can find a, quite a few collections at BYU. Jesse Embry there, the director of the archives, uh, that portion of the archives, has done a great job. She's found tons of stuff. Um, she just opened up a new collection that I'm anxious to see about with interviews with foster parents. But most of it has been with Native American students, some on the program, some at BYU. So there's a lot of, at, at BYU. Probably, I don't know, 50 or something, 60, 70, 80, 100 more. Uh, there's also a couple of collections in the church archives. Uh, so you've got that. Now, both of those sets of collections, they're done and conducted by Latter-day Saints. So you might, I, I'm, as a historian, I've got to take, well, you know, what are the questions they're asking? Why are they asking? What's the direction? Who are they picking? There's some problems there. So the problem I've had is that there's really not a lot that aren't done by that. Find, find some people that are not Mormon but are somehow interested in this, right? So there's not a lot. There was uh, a couple of interviews that were that done on the reservation that got some other opinions, um, but there's really not a, a whole lot. I sent out feelers. I, I published them in Novo Times. Hey, looking for people to talk to me, right? I didn't get a whole lot back. But it, there's, so there is a, a lot of interviews, but they tend to be you know, a little bit one-sided. There are people that were state presidents and bishops that are being interviewed that happen to also be Native American. 
So their, their opinions are obviously one direction. What age were the children placed? I mean, did you have some children that were very, very young, or most of them high school age uh, during the history of the So it started off with six-year-olds, because six-year-old is the year they go to boarding school. So it was the same thing, right? Boarding school, Mormon home, whatever. Uh, it started at six. There was some debate about that. Some of the church uh, representatives and some of the Navajo representatives really kind of battled it out at the Kanab meeting in 1957 or 9, I think it was. And, and they came back from that meeting and said, okay, the Navajo leaders want us to move it back. So we're going to move it back to eight. So they then moved back to eight, and that was the starting age. Um, as the program went on, of course, then they got later and later that they were getting people. But as early as eight for most of the history of the program. Okay. What's the actual, like, distribution? I don't know. And I just wondered if the younger children were more successful. Yeah, I do not know. know. Rather than the older. We could speculate. The only, the best clue I have is to look at that presiding bishopric report that said, again, four to eight years is the window. After eight years, they start to have spoiled brat problems. Right? They're, they're too, they got too much Western culture. So I started at nine years old. Nine years old. In California. And I come from a family of ten children. We all went. We all graduated from high school, uh-huh. and my parents are both members, and they were, so, you know, I guess you can take both, right. the good and the bad, every program has its problems, but there's also a lot of success. Um, I've got three kids, both all in, at BYU, so, you know, we're all strong members, and um, I the people that I went to, um, place with the program, they're still members from the reservation. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. You know, no, there's certainly some successful stories. I mean, all of my people that are happy about kids, it. I mean, they all went on placement. They all Education the primary goal or was spiritual yeah, growth the goal? For parents, if they wanted to be successful, was to be educated. For education. Mm-hmm. And she was, her only livelihood was the burning sheep, and she says, it's got to be a better way of life. you got to get an education. Was your mom Latter-day Saint? Um, yeah. Was she a lifetime participant, or was she baptized when she was a kid? She was, so. She's 89 years old yeah. right now, and, you know, she still has sheep, yeah. you know, that she has, <laughs> but... You know, I was still integrated to my home church while I was being on placement. I also had a long-time relationship with my foster family, but I still call mom. Yeah, there's a lot of that. My kids call her grandma, and so you can have the best of both worlds. And I think, you know, that was possible. Yeah, um, in one of Armand Moss's books, I forget which one, but he lays out kind of a formula that there's maybe four different major responses to this. One is the one you're describing, the people that are committed and they like it, they feel like it helped them and there's positivity and they, and sure there's some bad things but it's pretty good overall and then there was a, there was one that purely disliked, this is cultural genocide you stole my culture, right and then there was some sort of in-between stages I, and now I'm afraid to mess it up in front of you but it, I don't remember it either <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, there's different yeah, the that I had said that went on a mission to Oklahoma went on a reservation, you know, I mean, he was born in the city, but, you know, that's where he found himself, you know, like, his identity, right. the Native American people, and that's where he learned to embrace it, and he came back and wanted, you know, 
know, to learn more about them, you know, what to be where you was, you know, dance for living legends and mm -hmm. go to dances. And so, you know, you know, he did go back to learn his heritage. Right. I, I think that's something maybe I didn't speak enough about, but that for many it was it was seen as an ennobling identity that gave them strength and power and confidence, right? And and it could be seen as very good. That's something that Red power activists, outsiders never could see. They could just see yeah, Sydney Whitewash. I, I, I never, I guess I never saw that part with the, the rebellion of the red power. And right. I mean, there were just a small group. I never, I never saw that. I mean, our reservation is huge. I never saw that protest. So yeah, I don't know. Navajos actually. Do you know where? You're right on. The size of the reservation, Navajos uniquely almost, we're not, we're almost immune to aim and act in red power because it's so massive. And, and Navajos were so many that Navajos had a really strong self-identity, I'm Navajo, yeah, right? Yeah, you don't have, like, telephone or cell phone. And you're say, hey, spread you're out. And over here. And you a know, lot of other places. Have known that was happening. It's only maybe educated people that were actually thinking of doing the protests. Right. Or protests often drew from urban yeah. populations, and they drew from intertribal groups. And Navajos just had such a strong self-identity that my own personal feeling is that they were that they were less inclined to be drawn into red power stuff so anyway. From the area that I was from, we were a top respect, you know, to have that mm -hmm. kind of traditional way of living, you know, so maybe the more kids that lived towards urban areas where they were taught, you know, like, you know, with the Indian movement and all that stuff. But I do remember them telling us there was a time there was a threat where we were supposed to write a letter saying, you know, like, yeah, yeah you know, we're not being affected in a negative way for this person. That was the Indian Child Welfare Act. Yeah, wrote that so for. I, I remember. You that. might have read your letter. <laughs> <laughs> I never wrote the letter. <laughs> <laughs> I had a worker. I remember thinking I was speaking Navajo and I thought, you know, that I would speak Navajo around and he wouldn't understand me. But lo and behold, this guy actually went on his mission to the Navajo Reservation. And he answered me in Navajo. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> so, you know, he already loved the Navajo people. So I was blessed to have him, to work with him, but I mean, I felt the love, so it right. was, I mean, for me it was right, but I also seen the other side where it didn't really work out for other kids. So I think it's what you take from the program, like any other program, what you, you, what you take from it. You know, if you want that, that's great. If not, you know, then it's not what you really, you know, want to embrace. But I did have to live in two different worlds. I had to live in a yeah. white man's world, I had to live, you know, on a reservation. That was something I had to figure out for myself. And I think that's where the gospel came in, you know, mm -hmm. saying, hey, I have to be a daughter of God first before, you know, I can, you know, identify myself. But I did go home and they told me, you are an apple because you live in a white man's world. And I'm like, what, is, what does that mean, you know? Mm -hmm. But you did feel that. But, you know, I did come back to my family. They're members, so that's where I thought, you know, sought the refuge there. That, um, it's, you know, it's okay. Good story. Any other questions I can help with? Yes, sir? I wasn't going to ask, I was going to ask it to you privately, but let me throw it out and, and, and see what you think. Um, it, it, you made a passing reference to you can't have, you said you can't have competing spiritualities. And I think what you mean by that is, you know, you can't have a competing Mormon spirituality and you need the spirituality. But for instance, as she and, as, and some of the other comments have been, 
um, about heritage, and of, you, you you can have two cultures, right? And you and you can have an Indian heritage. It's, what I'm getting at is the same thing we get at when we talk about Africa, which is about drumming. Okay, you know when we have African con converts, can we allow the African converts to continue drumming because that's part of their cultural heritage? And so. I'd like to get your view right. on the same type of question. So that's a sticky boundary, though, right? Because for Native Americans, especially, everything cultural is spiritual, and yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, so, absolutely. how do you navigate that absolutely. line? And I think that the dances was my attempt to sort of that's that's right on the border, and it's getting you know, for some that's 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 savage, bad spiritual stuff. For others, that's perfectly fine cultural behavior, but that seems to be right about where well, the line is there's, there's going to be that tension, but. Let me give you the, the, the example that brought it to mind. I, um, I, I went through the Hopi Mesas, and I came off the Mesas, and I went down to where the little LDS chapel was, and there was a couple of Anglo missionaries down there and, and, and a couple of Hopi people, and I talked to them, and there, and there was a, um, a, a festival coming up, a ceremony coming up, and they said, oh, you know, all oh, the Mormons, we don't, we don't ever go up on the Mesas when the ceremonies are are going on, because you know the bad stuff, and I, you know, and I asked, and I didn't say anything to them, but I thought to myself, isn't there a way that we can do a little bit of balancing here, right. in which we allow for some recognition of that cultural heritage? I don't know how you could be right. hoping and yet not have. Uh, you know, participate in some of those in the ceremonials. Um, and, and so that's my question. I know it's not an easy one, right. but I would like to get What's allowed or what? Yeah, I don't think there's a real clear. Uh, George Feely's autobiography, he talks about going to some of these dances. Um, another perhaps helpful, I don't know if it's an answer, but helpful related information is there was a study done by the church, the Wasatch Opinion Research something in 1979. And in that study, they asked tribal members do these Indian student placement kids fit in when they come back home? Right? Are they weirdos that don't participate in anything, or do they actively engage? Or how are they seen? And uh, they were not, they were generally viewed as fitting in quite well. Family members said they fit in well, local community members said they fit in well, tribal leaders said they fit in well. So apparently they must have been participating enough in things, at least when they were home, um, that, that they, they didn't raise too many flags among their community members. Uh, but how much do they participate? What? How much is allowed? I think that individuals had to sort of navigate that themselves. Yeah. <laughs> Peyote's probably yeah. a donut. Yeah, yeah. We'll get into all kinds of tough questions. <laughs> uh, you're talking a lot about institutional issues, but it would seem to me that if you're taking a, a six or an eight-year-old <clears throat> out of one culture and into another, that the quality of the foster family has to make the biggest difference. In were they given any training? Uh, do you have any way to control for that? Yeah, so they had an orientation meeting at the beginning of the year for the foster parents and the kids. Uh, and they had a caseworker who was supposed to meet with the child every month and with the foster parents. But um, this, the evidence I found shows that the caseworkers were simply way overloaded. And that they couldn't possibly make all the visits, certainly not to train foster parents as often as they should have. Um, today, I don't know if any of your social workers, I think caseloads for social workers are something like 15, 20 kids on a load or something, right? And the placement social workers would have 80, 100. So you can try. There was, an, there was a book by, uh, I forget her name, 
She wrote a book that uh, was a little bit critical about the program. She was a foster parent, and she complained about lack of training, specifically. And she said she got roped into being some sort of like helper parent person because she had been in the program for a long time. As a foster parent, she could help teach the other people how to do it, and that the caseworkers were sort of delegating their responsibilities because they couldn't be everywhere all the time. So I got the feeling from the things that I've read that they just really did not get much training um, at all, really. How is that different from any other kind of foster program? <laughs> you know, like Asian yeah. students or yeah. students from Europe, you know, it's usually sure. just a brief. I, I am a foster parent, uh, so I have you 12 hours a year, which I think is more than the place your parents probably did. But my 12 hours are pretty lame, though. They, I don't, they're not very useful. I, here's how to put a car seat in. Yes, I know. Don't spank your kids. Yes, great. They had a video they made for orientation. Uh, I remember there was a speech I found that Claire Bishop, the early director, had given that was typed out. Someone provided it. Was, uh, he talked about how there's a honeymoon stage, everybody's nice, and then, then they start testing their boundaries, and then they got the introduction, the orientation, and, and your parents, you'll figure it out, right? Other kids. They often tried to pair, they tried to place kids in families that were a good fit, like, if you've got a bunch of boys, here's another boy, right? You'll, you should be good at that, um, but that didn't always work because sometimes they just, sometimes they get kids off the bus, they're like, they're not even on the roster, and just put them somewhere. Right, which is whether you're in the Mormon program or any other type of intercultural, cultures change, right? And things sometimes get saved and some things go and different people, different choices, right? So, um, while, I see the time. While, while the, I, I, last thing. So while the, uh, while the program was going on and modernizing and changing, on the reservation itself, I mean, there was all sorts of other programs and nothing to do with Mormons where they were modernizing and changing and there was cultural change and old people were like, oh, those young kids, they don't speak the language. So this is all happening independent of the Mormon church. But the Mormon church is one agent in that change. So, thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Dialogue podcast in honor of our 50th anniversary jubilee. If you enjoy listening, please consider becoming a subscriber to Dialogue by visiting dialoguejournal.com or supporting us with a donation. Thank you.